welcome to be here today. Uh, it's good to see many familiar faces and uh, to bring God's word to you from the uh, reading that we've just had in Isaiah. Uh, there is a, an outline of the talk uh, in the bulletin. Uh, hopefully you can follow well enough. And let's pray as we come together under God's word uh, this morning. Lord our God, your word is light and life. And we pray that you'll shine the light of your word in our hearts so that we may not only understand it, but believe it and live by it, wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name. Amen. For relaxation, I like reading mystery novels, uh, thrillers and uh, murder mysteries, those sorts of things. And it's fairly rare that I pick who the murderer is. But often in the middle of one of these murder mystery books, I'm convinced that I've worked it out, that it's this particular person. And then, of course, inevitably there is some weird twist and it's not who I think it is. When we come to this passage in Isaiah, we read within this passage one particular famous verse. Famous because we know it well at this time of year. It's often part of what we hear in the Christmas story. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. And those words we often sing, we hear, they're on Christmas cards, and so on. But it's not who you think it is. It's not who you think it is. Isaiah the prophet is addressing a situation that is fairly complex historically, around about 734 BC, a long time ago. The situation I need to explain, at least briefly. The king of Judah, the capital of which is Jerusalem, the southern part of Israel, was a man by the name of Ahaz. Not a good king. The grandson of a good king, a famous king, Uzziah. In the previous chapter, Isaiah has a famous vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw this vision of God in the temple. And now in chapter 7, it's the grandson of Uzziah who is the king. And he is facing what we could say is double trouble. The political situation was in turmoil in the Middle East. You might be surprised to know. And it has been ever since. The superpower of the day was a country called Assyria. It was uh, particularly getting strong from about 750 B.C rising with military might and beginning to flex its muscles a bit stronger than the baddie who was up here before and beginning to threaten its neighboring countries round about. And indeed, over the next 150 years, it became a massive world power. Assyria in the north, to the north, up around the northern part of Iraq into Turkey as it is today, that was a big threat for Ahaz in Jerusalem. But on the other hand, he faced another threat. The northern part of Israel was called Israel. It had broken away when Solomon died. And it too was fear, uh, fearful 
of Assyria, and it had formed an alliance with another little country called Aram. Sometimes we call that Syria, but Syria and Assyria are quite different. And so that little alliance of Israel and Syria, they wanted other nations to join them so that they became strong to resist Assyria. And they were threatening Judah and King Ahaz. So King Ahaz is facing this double trouble. The real threat of Assyria, or a an equally powerful threat in a way, uh, an ominous threat of these two little nations joined together. And their plan was to get rid of Ahaz, replace him with some other king called Tabil, so that that Tabil would join them and form this bigger alliance. What's Ahaz going to do in the middle of all this predicament? Well, Ahaz basically was trying to become friends with Assyria. He paid them money so that he'd be an ally and that they would not, in fact, conquer him. But he's still worried because these two little nations are beginning to move into his territory. And so what he does is to go out to the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, as it says in verse 3. Why there? Why, what's this place? Well, it seems that this was the main water supply for Jerusalem in the days of King Ahaz. Now, you probably need to know, if you don't know already, that in the ancient world especially, but the same happens today, I suppose, if your city was surrounded by an enemy and you had no water supply, you don't last long. And Jerusalem had no natural water supply within the city walls of Jerusalem. It's interesting that after Ahaz, two more kings later, uh, King Hezekiah builds a tunnel under Jerusalem to bring the water in so that it's safe and it does survive a siege. But King Ahaz didn't have that. And so he's gone out to inspect the water supply, I assume to think, how can we keep ourselves safe if these two little nations keep pressing in to our territory. He's worried. He's trying to find a, a natural and a political solution to his problems. He's a faithless king, a bad king in many other ways that are not in this passage. And yet, surprisingly, the message of the prophet is not one of condemnation or rebuke fundamentally but actually a message of comfort and encouragement and hope. And and in many ways that's surprising because the prophets of the Old Testament, largely when the kings are bad, are full of condemnation and judgment against them. But here not so. And so we're told that Isaiah is sent by God at the beginning of verse 3 to go out to this water supply area where the king is and to meet with the king and to say to him what's said in verse 4. Take heed, be quiet. It doesn't mean be silent, but just be calm. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint. Now, they're not uncommon words from God. They're reminiscent of God's words to Joshua when Joshua had to conquer the land. And now the land is under threat. 
in effect, the same encouragement is being given. Don't be afraid. Take heed. Be quiet or calm. Don't let your heart be faint or don't let your heart melt with fear. Why? Well, what's described in the verses following is a little bit of a mockery of this enemy. They're called two smoldering stumps of firebrands in verse 4. You see, you might think, King Ahaz, that those two nations of Syria and uh, Israel, or Ephraim's another name for Israel, joined together is like a ferocious fire that is approaching you to destroy you. But actually, really, they're just two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That is, they're not really that much of a threat. The fierce anger of Rezin, the king of Aram or Syria, and the son of Remaliah. Notice how the king of the north is not even named. That's a real mockery. It's a sort of dismissive way of referring to the king of Israel. Verse 5 goes on to say that because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has plotted evil against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and cut off Jerusalem and conquer it for ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king in it. But God says, no. They're human plans and don't be afraid of those human plans is what God is saying to King Ahaz. King Ahaz doesn't deserve this encouragement. As I've said, he's a bad king. He's an idolatrous king. He's not a faithful king to God. And yet, God is giving him these words of undeserved encouragement. And God says, it shall not stand at the end of verse 7. It shall not come to pass. Why? Because the head of Aram, that is Syria, is Damascus. That's its capital city. The head of Damascus is Rezin. That is, they're just led by a human. They're just led by a person. On the surface, he might look strong and ferocious like the black T-shirt guy who was up here before. Sorry, I don't know your name. Um, he might look a bit ferocious, but, but really he's not. The head of, head of Syria is just a person. And in fact, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered no longer a people. And that was certainly true. 65 years later, roughly 800 and, uh, seven, sorry, six, uh, 760 BC, thereabouts, Israel had been totally gone and repopulated by Assyria. And the head of Ephraim, or Israel, that's Samaria, that's their capital city. And the head of Samaria is, again, not even named the son of Remaliah. Why does it do that? Why doesn't it name this king? Partly mockery, just putting him down. But we need to be aware that what's behind this favor to King Ahaz, though he doesn't deserve it, is a promise of God to one of Ahaz's predecessors, ancestors, the famous King David, to whom God said there will always be a king of David on the throne of God's people. Now that promise had takes us back 250 years, roughly, before Ahaz. And ever since then, over Jerusalem had been a Davidic king. Astonishing, actually, in the ancient world to have a dynasty last that long. But in the north, over the people of God there, he's the son, not of David, but just of Remaliah, whoever that was. Remaliah wasn't even the king. So what's being alluded to here is a promise of God 
to David of a Davidic king. And that's why Ahaz is being shown such favor by God that even Ahaz doesn't deserve. Well, the head of that country, Samaria, is the capital. The son of Remaliah is the king, but it's just a human head. He may look ferocious with human eyes, but he's nothing really in the eyes of God. And then comes the challenge to Ahaz. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. You see, Ahaz, you're worried about the enemy. You're worried about Assyria. You're worried especially about Syria and Aram together because you know they want to get rid of you and replace you. You're looking for a political solution. You're hoping that Assyria will help you against those two little nations. You're looking for human wisdom. That's where you're placing your trust. But you're wrong, Ahaz. But yet instead of this word of rebuke, God says, they'll be gone. Trust me. Trust me. Turn to me and trust me. Don't trust in political human solutions. Stand firm in me. Well, how does Ahaz respond to this actually generous word from God through the prophet Isaiah? Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, maybe through the prophet. After all, the prophet's words are God's words. And he says and invites Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, the place of the dead, or as high as heaven. That is, Ahaz, you ask whatever sign you want to show you that I mean business with you. That if you trust in me, your trust will not be misplaced. Now that's remarkable. Ahaz being invited to ask for whatever sign he wants. It's not a freedom for us to do the same. The word of God can't be taken out of context here and say to you, if you doubt God, you ask whatever you may like. And it'll come to pass to show you that God is God. We're not being invited to ask that sort of sign, astonishing sign. But Ahaz was an almost unique opportunity. And how does he respond? He rejects the offer. He rejects the offer with with really a, a pretense of piety. So Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. It's a pretense of piety because he's actually quoting here from the early book of Deuteronomy, where it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test, something Jesus knew and Jesus quoted in his own temptations in the wilderness. But of course, Ahaz gets it wrong because ironically, he's not putting God to the test. God's putting him to the test and Ahaz is failing the test. He's not accepting God's gracious offer. If he accepted it, he's not testing God because God's offered this to him. So Ahaz is pretending to be very pious, very religious in rejecting what God offers him. In a way, there's a danger here of quoting the Bible. If he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, as it seems that he is, he's actually mistaking what that verse is about. It's interesting that when Jesus faces his temptations, of course, the serpent quotes the Bible at Jesus as well. Again, wrongly, 
and again out of context. So then what does Isaiah say? All right, Ahaz, because you refuse this gracious sign of God, God's going to kill you. These nations are going to overrun you. You'll be dead and not buried and eaten up by dogs and worms. No. What's even more remarkable is that, okay, you've refused the sign, but I'm going to give you one anyway. But God still deals with this King Ahaz with generosity. So here then, O house of David, the allusion to David reminds us that the reason why God is so much showing favor to Ahaz is because of God keeping his promise to David 250 years before. Is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? That is, you are, you are testing my patience. You're wearying me by refusing the sign and by refusing to stand firm in faith in me, God. So therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And here is the sign. The young woman, some translations have virgin, but technically young woman who would normally be a virgin, but not necessarily so, is with child. She is pregnant and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. There's the sign. Well, name the baby. It's a son. She's pregnant, not yet born. You see, it's not who you think it is. Imagine that Isaiah is saying, here is a prophecy of Jesus. Jesus is going to be born in 730 years time. And Ahaz, that's a great sign of encouragement for you. So you imagine to me, imagine today uh, for me, that God gives you a sign and says that in the year 2750, something or other is going to happen. Well, that's pretty good. You go home, you put your feet up and you wait. Now, my guess is that even the youngest of us are not going to be here in 730, 50 years time or whatever it is. It's not much of a sign. It's not much of an encouragement. It's not much of a help to Ahaz. But actually, the woman's pregnant. She's going to give birth to a son. Now, there's debate about who the woman is. Is it actually the king's wife? Could be referring to Hezekiah, although some say their dates don't quite work. It could be the prophet's, Isaiah's wife. We have no idea of his children's birth dates and so on. But in one sense, it doesn't matter. We may not know, but the assumption is that the king knew. So some prominent woman is pregnant, is going to give birth to a son. Of course, they wouldn't know that until the birth occurs. And this son, therefore, is going to be born within just a few months, nine at the most. But what's more, it goes on to say that he shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. There's debate about exactly how old he would be, but at the most, 20. But then you become officially an adult. You know the difference between right or wrong. That is, you, you take on adult responsibility. But it's saying that even before that, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. And it happened. If this is about 734, 13 years later, 
at the most, the northern kingdoms of Israel and Syria were destroyed. They were deserted. Assyria overran them. So within a short period of time, Ahaz, this sign will come to pass. And you will see that I am God, sovereign. It's not Assyria who's the major threat, or even Syria and Israel together. I, God, am in charge of all of this. And within just a short period of time, 13 years at the most, as it turned out, this sign will come to pass. And that's what's being referred to here. It doesn't say 13 years, but before this child is, a, is much of an adult, it'll all happen. You see, the sign is not saying, way, way off in the distant future, a virgin's going to give birth. That's no help. And it's clearly not what, the, what God through Isaiah is saying here. But rather something soon. We don't know the baby's name, and in some way that doesn't matter. But the baby is the sign. A son will be born called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. And that's the point of the sign in a way. Ahaz, you don't deserve it, and the people of Judah don't deserve it, but I am with you. And I am with you to protect you against these enemies. So trust me. Put your faith in me. Stand firm in me. I am with you. It's not a new idea here in Isaiah 7. For way, way back, even to Abraham, 2,000, uh, no, no, uh, 1,200 years before this, God had said, I'm with you. And periodically through the Old Testament, I am with you, with Abraham, with Jacob, with Moses, with Joshua. And he was throughout their lives. And so when God says, I am with you, Emmanuel, God with us, it's a, not a brand new idea, a brand new promise. It's got a heritage behind it of God's faithfulness to be with his people to whom he's promised to be with them. And God had promised to be with Judah and to be with the Davidic kings, even if Ahaz has neglected that promise and has acted unfaithfully throughout his reign and throughout his time. What God is saying to Ahaz is, I'm giving you a sign to show you that I mean it. I am with you. God with us. Trust me. Come to me. Stand firm in me. And you will stand, as verse 8 said, uh, sorry, verse 9 said. If you don't stand firm in faith, you're not going to stand at all. But if you stand firm in faith, because I am with you, because God is with us, you will stand against your enemies, against Syria and Israel, and against Assyria itself in time to come. Interestingly, King Hezekiah, who comes later than Ahaz, does stand firm in faith and resists the mighty, mighty power of Assyria. Astonishingly so. When the angel of the Lord kills the army of Sennacherib, the Assyrian emperor, and they beat a retreat with a tail between their legs. Stand firm in faith. God with us. There's a sting in the tail. Verse 17 says, The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your ancestral house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's when Solomon died. And Judah and Ephraim or Israel separated, divided the people of God 
one with a Davidic king over Jerusalem, the other with a new capital in the north and a non-Davidic king. Those days are coming. There's an element of judgment, a sting in the tail here. Come on, Ahaz, trust me. Trust me, you can trust me, for I am with you. So what on earth has this got to do with Jesus? Why do we read in Matthew chapter 1 that this is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus? See, so often we, we simply think this is a prophecy of Jesus, but it's clearly not. It's clearly referring to something that would immediately or very soon happen for Ahaz within just at most 20 years, and it did happen. So does Matthew get it wrong? Does Matthew read the Bible badly and pluck out a verse out of its context? No, I don't think so. But I think our normal way of understanding this is wrong. See, Matthew says this is fulfilled, and we often think a prophecy gets fulfilled, but the word fulfilled is a broad idea. I think it's better to see here not a prophecy, but a pattern. See, what often happens through the Old Testament is that God works in typical ways, a pattern of a way. God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. And that means the enemies will not stand against us. God is with Joshua and the enemies against Israel fall, even though they're mighty. God is with Ahaz and his mighty enemies. They do not withstand or, or conquer Israel or Judah, Judah rather. And in a bigger way, in a better way, in the climactic way, God shows that he's with us in Jesus. So that not just a political enemy, the Roman Empire, for example, cannot stand, but that all enemies cannot stand. It's the pattern that finds its climax or fulfillment in Jesus. It's not that Isaiah in this verse is prophesying Jesus. That's no help to Ahaz. It's clearly not what this is about, but rather the pattern of God with us so that our enemies, ferocious though they are, will not stand against us. That pattern finds its climax in Jesus Christ, in a young woman, even a virgin giving birth, and naming him Emmanuel. Interestingly, Jesus was not called Emmanuel, but he's a sign of God with us. And the enemies that he conquers are far greater than Assyria or even Rome. The enemies of sin and death and evil conquered, surprisingly, by a victory on a cross that looks like a defeat and yet is the most powerful victory and the most powerful proof that God is with us, though we don't deserve it. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to ask for a sign and we don't need to be given a sign because we have even more evidence that God is with us than King Ahaz did. For we live, of course, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We live after his virgin birth. We know enough. We, need, we know sufficient from scripture and from history that God indeed is with us. When he promises to be, he never breaks that promise. And that our enemies, in particular sin and death and evil, are conquered on the cross 
and by the resurrection. God indeed is with us. But just like Ahaz was challenged, it raises the challenge for each one of us. Ahaz was invited to stand firm in faith, in God that is. What about you? Is God with you? Are you standing firm in faith in God? Or are you in some way trying to save yourself? Are you in some way trying to find a human solution to your life, to your destiny, to your eternity? Are you thinking that somehow your piety, your religious practice, your righteous good deeds might somehow gain you credit points towards an eternity? Do you somehow think that regular Bible reading or being in a small group or coming to church gives you enough sort of eternal frequent flyer points that you can have a first class trip to heaven one way? See, that would be the equivalent of what Ahaz was doing, trying to save himself. But what he's being invited to do and what in Jesus we are being invited to do is place our faith in God. Humbly, as we've sung and as we've read. Ahaz the king wants to save himself and his country, though he's afraid. So hard it is for us to humble ourselves sometimes and recognize that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot get to be with God by our own deeds. But God in his grace, in Christ especially, is with us now, today, every day, and for eternity. God with us, proven in Christ. Do you accept the invitation? Do you accept the challenge that Ahaz received? If you stand firm in faith, you'll stand. But if you don't stand firm in faith, you'll not stand. Let's pray. Lord our God, as your word invites us to be wise for salvation in Christ, Help us to humble ourselves and place our faith and trust in you through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for us. Thank you that you indeed are with us, that you keep your promise to be with us throughout our whole life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.